All right, everyone, welcome. Fifth night of How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. And we are on page three, which is after the first tab in your notebook. So the red tab in your notebook, at least mine's red, says number one on it. If you go behind that and you go to page three, that's where we are. And the title of the class is How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, and it's designed to take the intimidation out of reading and studying the Bible. Now, why would reading and studying the Bible be intimidating? Well, there's at least three reasons why. One is that its uh, size is uh, causes it to be intimidating. Its age causes it to be intimidating. And the fact that it's diverse in the way it's put together as well. With regard to its age, the first book in the Bible was written no earlier than 3,500 years ago. The first book in the Bible, Genesis, deals with first things and uh, deals with uh, in the beginning God created. The first five books were all written by the same person, Moses, no earlier than 3,500 years ago. Now, it's possible that Job was written earlier than uh, earlier than that, earlier than Moses' time. So that's why I say it that way, that the first book in the Bible was written no no earlier than 3,500 years ago. But the last book was written 2,000 years ago. So you have a very old book, and you have a very sizable book, a large book. 66 individual books comprise the one book of the Bible, and it contains 1,189 chapters in it. So there's a lot of material in this old book. And then it's diverse in that it has 40 different authors from different backgrounds writing at different time periods. So you put all that together, you have a very old book, you have a very large book, and you have one that is very diverse in its authorship. But the good news is, despite all of that, the Bible is really about three things. And in the introduction that's in your notebook, just prior to that first tab, we have four pages that we went over in our first couple of weeks together. And on that fourth page, we try to whittle down the three things that the Bible is is about. It's about these three things. Again, those are on page four in your introduction, but I just reiterate them for you. The Bible is about creation, and the Bible is about sin, the fall, and the Bible is about redemption. And all three of those, creation, fall, redemption, are dealt with in the opening chapters of the Bible. By the time you get to the end of the third chapter of the Bible, you've already dealt with all three of those. In the first two chapters, you have uh, creation. And creation is God telling humanity about himself and about themselves and about what he expects from them. And so I called that an orientation. God is giving humanity an orientation to his his world. So it's about creation, an orientation, which is really who God is, who we are, and what God expects from us. That's the first thing the Bible's about. Creation, orientation, who we are, who God is, and what God expects from us. But then when you come to chapter 3, you have the entrance of sin into God's world as the first man and woman disobey God. And that's what we call the fall. It's not called the fall because it was an accident. In fact, it was very deliberate. The woman and the man thought about what they were doing, and they deliberately disobeyed a clear and direct command of God. So it's a fall in that it's a lapse 
from what they were created to be. And that's why it's called the fall. But the fall means the entrance of sin. The Bible is most definitely about that because the fall disorients everything. God gave an orientation, but sin results in disorientation. Nothing is the way that it was designed to be. Nothing in our world right now is as it was originally designed to be. Nothing. Everything is tainted by sin. We're tainted. We're more than tainted. We are completely sinful. Our environment is uh, affected by sin as well. You see that in Genesis chapter 3. There's sickness and disease and death and uh, and war and famine and uh, conflict interpersonally. I mean, all of these things go back to Genesis chapter 3. So there's the fall, which results in disorientation, or to put it uh, another way, it's uh, what our problem is. So creation is orientation, who God is, who we are, and what he expects from us. The fall is disorientation, and that is what our problem is. And then the third thing is redemption, and redemption is in that third chapter of the Bible as well. Because when you come to verse 15 of that third chapter, you have God giving out consequences because of sin to all of the actors in that drama, the man and the woman and the serpent. And in talking to the serpent, God says, thank you, ma'am. God says, uh, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and between her seed, and you will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And in that, God reveals, I'm going to give a solution to this problem of sin. So it's a ray of hope in the midst of all of these consequences for, for sin. It's sometimes called, Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel. Uh, the Latin term is proto-evangelium. The uh, proto, first uh, evangel, first, first mention of the gospel in scripture. And so that's God in redemption reorienting his world. So creation is orientation, fall is disorientation, and redemption is reorienting God's world to what it was designed to be. To put it in a line, it's what God is doing about sin. So creation, orientation, who God is, who we are, and what he expects from us. Fall is disorientation, what our problem is. And redemption is reorientation, what God is doing about sin. Now, if you reduce it down in the first three chapters of the Bible to three major subjects, and you understand then that the rest of what you're going to read in Scripture fits into those categories. It's the story of God redeeming what has gone wrong because of the entrance of sin into his world. Now that should take some of the intimidation out. And then if further, as we say on page four of your introduction, again, this is already there for you, but we say you can refine it further to just a line, that the Bible is about people in situations before God, people in situations in the presence of, of God. So in everything you read in the Bible, you're reading about people interacting with the God who who made them. And they are interacting as they should, or they're interacting in ways that they shouldn't. But you're always finding people interacting with and transacting with, with God. So it's people and situations before God. And even though the Bible is this very old book, and it deals with all kinds of different people from different backgrounds and all of that, all that diversity... 
uh, all that antiquity, two of those three things have not changed, people and God. So as you, in 2015, read about what people were doing in 1500 B.C., you're still reading about people who are clueless like we are and who are sinful like we are, and they're interacting with God like we do. And that's why, then, the Bible is useful. The Bible is profitable, the Bible claims. The Bible itself says all Scripture is useful, all Scripture is profitable. Well, how is all this Scripture profitable for me if it's that old and it's dealing with people you know, that long ago in those kinds of circumstances? It was because people are the same, and the God in whose presence they are transacting is the same as, as well. That also means, as you read through your Bible, as you start at the beginning and you go through, and the unfolding story of God's redemption is, is uh, made known, as you do that, you're going to read about things that are foreign to us. You're going to read about, and we're going to see, maybe even today if we get to it, we're going to see the giving of God's law to his people. And a time period of, uh, of millennia where God's people were living under the law. Well, the law is quite a different setup than what we, we know today. And the sacrificing of animals and all of that as part of your worship. And you, you start reading through that and you go, what does that have to do, do with me? And since God has not changed and since people have not changed, then all of that stuff is applicable as well as it all points to the ultimate solution for sin, and it all, now hear this, all of it, every piece of the Bible, says something about the glory of God, says something about the character of God, and it says something about the character of people. God hasn't changed, people haven't changed, and so in the stories you read in the Bible, in all sections of the Bible, you read something of the character of God, which is his glory, you read something of the character of People, sinful people, which is not glorious. But therefore, it's all applicable to us. And so though the Bible has a number of different authors, another thing that makes it, uh, takes some of the intimidation out of it is the fact that it ultimately has one author. Forty different authors over uh, at least a 1,500-year period. But ultimately, it has one author, and that's God, who is superintending the entire process so that what they wrote is precisely what he wanted written. And that means because the Bible came from God and it's God's word, it's inerrant. Inerrant, it's without error. And that means that it is true in everything that it affirms. The Bible's true in everything that it affirms. Now, I state it that way because not everything in the that's said in the Bible is true. <clears throat> now, you say, well, not everything that is said in the Bible is true, Right? Because in Genesis 3, for example, when the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. That's not true. <laughs> you will die. And they did die. So not everything in the Bible is true. And that's why I say the Bible is without error in everything that it affirms. The Bible does not affirm that you will not die. In fact, quite the opposite. It affirms you will die. And it is without error. In, in that, and it records even erroneous and untruthful, untruthful statements like "You shall not surely die." But in everything that it affirms, it is true, including history, 
including when it touches upon matters of, of science as well. Now, the reason I'm beating on this is because we're in the opening chapters of the Bible. And those opening chapters of the Bible deal with origin. They deal with, with beginning. And as you know, many people question whether or not the Bible is accurate when it speaks of origins and beginnings and things that touch upon on science. But we dealt with, a couple of weeks ago, uh, different kinds of science, forensic science and operation science. If you were with us, you remember that. So the Bible's true in all that it affirms, including history and including science. In fact, did you know that one unique aspect of, of Christianity, as compared to other religions, is that Christianity is an historical religion. That God has made himself known in history, in his interactions with, with people. And it's a history that can be verified or theoretically could be falsified. Now, since it's without error, it's never been falsified and it's not going to. But in theory, it could be falsified because there are objective facts that are given in the Bible. It talks about people and, and tribes and, and nations that existed at particular periods of time. Well, if anyone could could prove that any of those people or any of those nations didn't exist at the time the Bible says, that would be an error, wouldn't it? But the Bible and God, the God of the Bible, makes himself known in this historical process, in history that involves uh, dates and involves and involves names and people. And in fact, God commits himself to this verifiable process. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, I just want to jot down Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 19 to 22. Deuteronomy 18, 19 to 22. And God says, I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. That's pretty serious. And then the next verse, verse 21, says, You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? How can we know? And the Lord says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that's a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be alarmed of him. And remember what the penalty was, just a few. It was death. Yeah, don't be alarmed of him because he's going to be killed. <laughs> okay? Because he has spoken falsely. But how do we know he's spoken falsely? Because what he has said does not conform to reality, has not actually taken, has not actually taken place. So God commits himself to this. And this is different in Christianity than, than other religions. Uh, take, for example, Islam. In Islam, you have a holy book, uh, the Quran. But the Quran is written by, by one person. Um, one person, uh, Muhammad. And uh, it's a revelation to Muhammad from, from an angel. He's given these revelations over a long period of time. And that's what comprises the holy book of Islam, the, the Quran. Now, it's written by, written by one person. Uh, and you take his word for it or you don't. There's no predictive prophecy in it. It's, 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 it's his pronouncements 
And in Islam, the claim is his pronouncements as having come from this, this angel. That's a revelation to him. But there's nothing objective for you to, to verify. You either believe Muhammad or you don't. That's, that's that. But Christianity is not given that way. It's given in the context of history and people and events. And all of these are verifiable and, as I say, theoretically falsifiable. And the, and the, the greatest of these historical events that the truth or falsehood of Christianity hinges on is the resurrection of Jesus. And in, in your New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible makes much of the verifiability of that, that this was an historical event that actually happened. And if it didn't happen, then Christianity is not true. So 1 Corinthians 15, and here's what uh, verse 5 says. He that is Christ, appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. So it's going through the fact that Christ raised from the dead and he actually showed himself to people. And you know this from reading the Gospels in your New Testament, that after the resurrection, Jesus indeed showed himself to people. He ate with uh, his, his first followers. So that, by the way, tells you something about our, the resurrection body. Jesus ate. Jesus ate with them. You know, so we, we this idea that, you know, in the resurrection and in heaven, we're all going to be like ghosts. And we're all going to have this. The truth is you're going to have a body. You're going to have a body fitted for its environment. It's an incorruptible body, but you will have a, you will have a body. And Jesus, in his resurrection, his glorified body, had this had this body. He ate with his first followers. He showed himself to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then this phrase is added. Most of whom are still living. Now, why is that there? Most of whom are still living. The idea is that those to whom this was first written, in theory, could go and look that up, could go and run some of these people down. Because they were alive at the time this was written 2,000 years ago. Though some have died, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That is the, the Apostle Paul. So Christianity is an historical religion. What we're reading about in Genesis and what you'll read about in the narratives going forward is True and verifiable and in theory falsifiable because it is true in all that it affirms about history or anything else. And God unfolds his story in the pages then of history, in the events of time. And I mentioned the proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed and, uh, and, and he, the seed uh, that will come from the serpent, the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the one to come, but he, this one that will come through the seed of the woman, will crush your head. And so there God says, I'm going to fix, I'm going to redeem this problem of sin, but this redemption and the solution is going to come through a human being, through the seed of the woman. So now God is prophesying, predicting this is going to happen. And the story unfolds, and it unfolds in, in history. And how does it unfold? Well, it unfolds from Genesis 3.15 and then Genesis 5. You have the, the lineage then 
followed. And that's why in Genesis 5 you have a, a genealogy of so-and-so begat so-and-so and on it goes. Why is that there? So that the line can be followed. And it goes through the line of one of Adam's sons, Seth. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 6, you find a Sethite named Noah. And Noah is a descendant, a descendant of Seth. And God is bringing this line about through whom ultimately the Messiah is going to come, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and defeat the problem of sin. But the Bible follows the line. God's predicted it's going to come through, he's going to come through the seed of the woman, so let's follow that seed. Through Seth, through Noah, and in chapter 6 of Genesis and verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And, and why Noah? What was great about Noah? Nothing. Okay? So whenever I ask you what's great about somebody, you go, nothing. Okay? Unless it's God. <laughs> but if I ask you about anybody else in the Bible, what's great about them? Nothing. Okay? What's great about Noah? Here's what's great about Noah, that he, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So it's not he was great and God said, wow, I'm looking for a great guy like you. No, it's because God placed his favor and that's why we know Noah as great. And that's why you find guys like Noah mentioned in your New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. But it's all because of God's grace preceding what they did. So then there's Noah and there's his uh, seven family members who are saved from the worldwide, worldwide flood. And Noah has his three sons, Ham, Shem, and, and Japheth. And the Bible follows the line of, of Shem. And in Genesis chapter 10, you have another one of these genealogies going through the line of Noah's son, Shem. One of Shem's descendants is a man named Terah, and one, one of Terah's sons is a guy named Abram. And then the Bible begins to focus specifically now on this particular person and his family line through whom the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the one who will defeat the problem of sin, will, will come. And God gives to Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12 on page 3 of your, your notes. Where at the top it says the Old Testament, the first 2,000 years, second paragraph. Genesis 12 starts with, with Abraham. It starts with Abraham and it starts with God saying, Abraham, I want you to move from your hometown in Ur, modern-day Iraq, as we talked about last week. I want you to move from there to a land that I will show you. When he leaves, he doesn't know where he's going. <laughs> and so he just obeys the command of God. Leave Ur. Leave all of your roots. Leave your family and go to the place that I'm going to show you. But he chooses Abraham. What was great about Abraham? Nothing. <laughs> Remember last week... Abraham was an idol worshiper, a stone worshiper in what we now know as Iraq. <coughs> and so God chose, God chose Abraham. And then the, the line of the Bible follows through Abraham to ultimately it's going to come through to the, uh, to the, the Messiah through to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So second paragraph on page 3, Genesis 12 starts with Abraham. We're now up to 2000 B.C. Abraham was born in a big city with a little name, and so it gives you some mnemonics here to try to remember uh, who's involved and who left Ur with uh, Abraham. 
the middle of that paragraph, they go to Haran. In Haran, Abraham's father, Terah, died, and God promised Abraham he would give him land and a seed and a blessing if he would go to the land then called Canaan, and that's what Abraham Abraham did. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 15, verses 13 through 15, 15, 13 through 15, Genesis 15, 13 through 15, God says, all of this is going to happen, I'm promising all of this to you, but he says, God does. Uh, your descendants will be taken captive by another nation and they will live in another land for 400 years. So God is telling Abraham, I'm giving you this land, but I'm also predicting for you that in the future, your descendants are going to be taken captive by another nation in another land. They're not going to come to this land and take you captive. They're going to take you captive in another land. So I'm giving you the land, but there's going to be a 400-year period where you won't have it. You won't be in it because you'll be captive there. Now, why am I beating on that? Well, one, God says it in Genesis 15. This is the land I'm giving you, but this is the way it's going to, going to go. And that land and that 400-year captivity are going to become very important in, in just a bit. So third paragraph, middle of page three. Now we know three key people, Adam. Noah, Abraham, and these three key events. Creation, Abraham's move to Canaan, and the flood. Now, if you look on page four, if you just hold your finger and turn to the next page, page four, we filled in that rectangle on the left side of the page last week, right? Uh, I don't think we filled in the top part. Did we fill in the top part? Okay. And that's why, that's what that third paragraph on the previous page is about. These three people. Top left-hand corner, you've got Adam is the key person. And you see the number one there in the, in the black box. That's just chapter one of Genesis. We're introduced to Adam. And then in the middle at the top there, you've got Noah. And the reason it's got a six there is because we're introduced to Noah in chapter six of Genesis. And then if you move to the right, you've got chapter 12 and Abraham. So you've got these three key people in these first 12 chapters, Adam and Noah and and Abraham. And you see the timeline underneath their names there? You've got the timeline of creation that is no later than 4,000 B.C. And then you've got Noah in 3,000 B.C. You've got the flood at 2,500 and then you've got Abraham at 2000 BC. And that's why we call this the first 2000 years. The title on the top of page three is the Old Testament, the first 2000 years, because 2000 years are being covered here from Genesis one through 11 until Abraham is introduced in 2000 BC. Now, what are the key events? The key event for Adam, of course, is creation at the top there. For Noah, it's the flood. And then for Abraham, it's the journey or the move from Ur to Canaan, the journey or the move. And down in the down at the bottom, you see the box that has the map there. And these are all these are chapters in the Bible in those black boxes that deal with those particular areas. 
So number, you see chapter 11 there in the, on the map is next to Babel. Well, why is that? Because in Genesis 11, it's about the Tower of, of what? Of Babel. And then 9 and 10, you see Mount Ararat there. That is where, that's where the, the uh, ark settled after the, after the flood in Genesis chapters 9 and 10. So it just gives you a, an idea of where some of these events were taking place. And then right above that, You've got this family tree, and you've got Adam, but the sons that are mentioned are Cain and Abel and Seth. But as I said, one of the one of Seth's descendants is Noah. And the Bible, beginning in chapter six, focuses on Noah. And then Noah has these three sons, but it focuses on one of those three sons, Shem. And then one of Shem's descendants is Abraham, and from chapter twelve on, it begins to focus on Abraham and his line. Now, why is it focusing on that? Because God said the solution to the problem of sin is going to come through the seed of the woman. And he is tracing that seed all the way through. So now we've got Abraham as the key person. And if you turn back then to page 3. In Canaan, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael, who is the father of the Arabs. Isaac, the father of the Jews. And I went off for a bit on some of the history of the Jews and conflict and, and all of that stuff last week. And if you can't sleep sometime, you should listen to the recordings of me doing that stuff. Uh, we have those recordings on our website, so if you weren't here last week or on previous weeks, you can listen to them there. Um, but we went, through, we went through some of that, and I mentioned that Islam uh, has a different take on this whole importance of Isaac and Ishmael. Now, Isaac is the, the promised son. And God had told Abraham, you're going to have a seed. And yet Abraham didn't have a son. Abraham got impatient, as did his wife Sarah. And so he took one of their handmaids, Hagar, and had a son by her. And his name was Ishmael. And it was 15 years later that he actually has Isaac. And God says... No, you're going to have a son through your wife, Sarah. And when she's 90 and when he's 100, at that advanced age, they have this miraculous son that they name Isaac, whose name means laughter because it is, it is comical, almost, uh, that those folks in that advanced age could have, have this promised son. So Isaac is clearly the promised son, and the Bible follows then the line of Isaac after that. But in Islam... It's actually Ishmael who turns out to be the important guy. And and how do you know this? Because in Islam, one of the most famous stories about Abraham and his promised son Isaac is changed. Uh, in Genesis 22, chapter 22, after Abraham has waited for this promised son for all of these years and, and then finally has Isaac, and then sometime later, when Isaac is still a, probably a teenager, God says to him, I want you to take your son Isaac and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. <clears throat> and many of you know the story, but in Genesis 22, as you just read through that, just think about being Abraham. As he gets Isaac up very early, tells him we're going to go, and Isaac is, doesn't know why. He's even asking questions. You know, where is the, where's the animal for the sacrifice? 
And, and Abraham says, God will provide. Now, in that story, in Genesis 22, you know, Abraham still knows that Isaac has got to be the, has got to be the promised son. God's told him that. And yet now he's telling me to kill the promised son. So all I can do is obey. <laughs> but, you know, how's this going to happen if you're Abraham? All he knows is somehow it's going to happen. And even though Abraham was faithless when he was impatient with God and had Ishmael by his, by his uh, handmaid, Hagar, even though he was faithless, the reason, one of the reasons that he is called the father of the faithful, and so much is made of the faith, the, the belief of Abraham, is because of an incident like this. He believes God. And believes God's promise. And he doesn't know how the promise is going to be fulfilled. But God's telling me to go and sacrifice my son. And so he takes him. And before he goes up the mountain, he tells some folks to wait because we're going to return. And that's something that people miss sometimes in Genesis 22. But he knew somehow that they were going to return from that from that mountain. Now, was it going to be, I'm going to have to offer my son and God's going to raise him from the dead? He, he didn't know. Well, we know the story that God did indeed provide at the last moment uh, an animal and commanded Abraham, do not offer your son. You've passed the test of faith and obedience that I've given you. And uh, a substitute was offered in Isaac's place. Now, in that famous story in Islam, guess who the child is? It's Ishmael. It's not it's not it's not Isaac. And, you know, um, you know, you know when Islam started, so this is not going to be a history lesson on Islam, but just, but uh, Islam started in uh, 630, 632 AD. And uh, that's the 7th century is when Islam started. That's the time of Muhammad. Now, it's important because that's, you know, 600 years after Christianity has started. That's 600 years after the Bible's completed. The story of Abraham and Isaac has been around for centuries by the time Islam changes it. So if you encounter an Islamic person and you you want to talk about the veracity of the Bible versus the veracity of of Islam, uh, it's one of the things you might bring up, that there's a chronological problem here. That this story had been around for centuries before you guys ever came along and changed it, right? <laughs> and uh, and and yet that's the that's the case. Now, here's one of the things they will tell you. How do I know this? Because I've been told this. Uh, who was I told it by? Uh, a coworker back when I had a real job as a computer programmer, and I had a coworker who was from Pakistan, and I had just some of the most interesting talks with Saeed. Uh, from Pakistan, as he would tell me about religious freedom in Pakistan, for example. And I would say, come again? <laughs> um, I mean, the name of the capital is Islamabad. I mean, you know, what kind of... <laughs> just, you know, I suppose you could get a fair shake, but, but anyway, um, and, uh, and we would, you know, we would debate, and, uh, and he told, I told him this, I said, look, you understand the Bible was around hundreds of years before the Quran and Islam and Muhammad 
And so these changes can't be justified historically, chronologically. And he says, well, you know, your scriptures are corrupt. <laughs> and, and how does he know they're corrupt? Here's how. This is what, this is what Said said. That the Jews corrupted. And whenever he would say the Jews, that was not okay. This was not this was not happy talk. Okay, the Jews corrupted it, and you know that they corrupt. You know, he says that they corrupted it. You know how corrupt they are. He says because the Bible says how corrupt they are, doesn't it? I mean, they're the ones who killed Jesus. All right, now have you guys you following? Are you following the flaw in what he's saying here? The Jews are corrupt and they corrupted the Bible. And the Bible says how corrupt the Jews are. So my statement to him was, well, if they corrupted the Bible, why didn't they expunge the parts that say they're corrupt? (laughs) I mean, it still says how corrupt they are, right? You would think while you're at it. Yeah, you would make yourself look a little bit better, right? So there's really no answer for that. The truth is, the Bible presents the Jews and Abraham and everybody else with all of their warts and all of their and all of their issues. But it was written the last book two thousand years ago, and Islam started in the seventh century A.D. So again, that fourth paragraph, page three. In Canaan, Abraham had two sons: Ishmael, father of the Arabs; Isaac, father of the Jews. The Bible follows Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Esau and Jacob. Esau became the father of the Edomites, but the Bible follows Jacob. Now, this the Bible follows peace. This is God with the seed of the woman. I just will actually come to a point where I won't be repeating this over and over. But it's important that you get this for the storyline of the Bible. Genesis three fifteen. There's the seed of the woman, and this is how the solution to sin is going to come. And God is in detail following the line now through Abraham, through Isaac, and then through through Jacob. Now, Jacob and Esau are twins. And as you read that story, and you see the chapter listed there for you in chapter 25 of Genesis. They're twins, but, but Esau comes out first, so he's older. And because he's older, really the the birthright and the the line would go through would go through Esau, but as the story goes, uh, their mother and Jacob plotted to successfully deceive their father when the time came to uh, anoint Esau as his successor, and so Jacob received the the birthright through these deceptive means, and so Jacob the, his name. <laughs> means deceiver or supplanter. You know, and, and often you have the Bibles, the names of these people predicting what they did later. And that's precisely what happened with the name and the actions of, of Jacob. So why Jacob? Remember I keep asking you guys this, so why Abraham, why Noah? All right, why Jacob? Now that's an easy one, because he was a good guy? <laughs> no, he was crooked, right? <laughs> Uh, he was he was crooked. He was de- he was a supplanter. He was deceitful. And yet he's chosen by God. Is Jacob. And if you 
care to read on your own sometime, which I encourage you to do in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9. You read there, Paul in the New Testament now, taking some of these stories and making application of this then to, to us and how it is that we are in God's family and have a relationship with God. And he goes back to Jacob and Esau, and it says in Romans chapter 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God said, I'm quoting, the older will serve the younger. In other words, before they were born, God had already determined it's going to be Jacob. But what did Jacob do to deserve that? What's the answer? Because Romans 9 says, before they were born, and Paul adds, just in case you're somebody who's still stuck on, you know, for God to bless people, it must be because they were good people. No, it was before they had done anything good or bad. God said, the older will serve the younger. So why Jacob? Because God said so. That's why. Why you? Let me preach here for a minute. What's good about you? Nothing. Preach it. Somebody said nothing. That's good. Because <laughs> I'm the younger. Yeah. Are you the younger? All right. Okay. So you go tell your you go tell your older siblings that. Okay. <laughs> I have five brothers who are older. Okay. There you go. But it's nothing about it's nothing about. See, that's what grace is, and I'm trying to show you that that that's been the 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 line of grace all the way through the Bible. That God uses people, but it's not because these people are something special. They become something special when God uses them. Otherwise, none of us are anything special. right? It's God's grace that does that. And it's God's grace in, in Jacob's life that does that. The Bible follows Jacob, middle of that fourth uh, paragraph. And Jacob's name was changed by God in chapter 32 to Israel. Israel, which means contender with God, contending with God. Now, the reason is, is in the, if you read that in the chapter before, you actually have Jacob contending, wrestling with, with God. So you can read that on your own. And he's given this name Israel, contender, or contender contending with, with God. And he had 12 sons whose descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. So when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we're talking about people who came from the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to, to Israel. And he has these, uh, these uh, 12 sons, and the 12 tribes are named after 11 of those 12. 11. One of the sons, the 11th son, is Joseph. And the 12th son, the youngest son, is Benjamin. But the, but the 11th one is Joseph, and there's no tribe called Joseph. Because uh, Joseph had two sons, and there's a half-tribe named for each of them. So Ephraim and Manasseh, two sons of Joseph. So the 12 tribes came through these 12 sons. In the case of Joseph, it's these two sons of his that are half-tribes. But they are descendants of Jacob, and that's why we call them the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that last paragraph, four of these 
are worth mentioning here. Four of the twelve. Levi is one of the sons. And he was the father of the tribe through which through through whom came Moses and his brother Aaron. The priests were descendants of, of Aaron. So the Levitical, sometimes you'll hear this, the Levitical priesthood. That's the priesthood. And these are the descendants of Levi, thus the Levitical priesthood. Leviticus is one of those first books in the Bible. And if you read through that, it's about all these priestly duties and all these ceremonies. That's that's why. So you have Levi. Then you have Judah. And he's the father of the tribe which produced ultimately David. And then a thousand years after David, Jesus. And the Bible had predicted that the Messiah would come, the the king, the coming king would come through, of these 12 sons, Judah would be the one through whom he would come. In Genesis 49 and verse 10, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter, that is the the rod of of rule for the king, will not depart from, from Judah. The king is going to come through Judah, God says. And so later you've got David as one of these descendants of Judah. Then Jesus is a descendant of David. And that's why Jesus is sometimes called in your New Testament the son of David. And Bethlehem, the town he was born in, is the city of who? The city of David. We're going to see when we get to the book of Ruth, why Bethlehem? How did Bethlehem get a starring role? In this unfolding drama of, of redemption, you know, it's Bethlehem where Jesus was born, but he was born there because that's the city of David. But why was that the city of David? God sets up this whole plot hundreds of years before through the story of the book of Ruth. So we'll look at that uh, later. So four of these are worth mentioning. There's Levi. There's Judah. Benjamin was the youngest son. He's the 12th son. And he's the father of the tribe of the two main Sauls in the Bible. King Saul. But in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, who's also called the Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly half of your New Testament. But Saul of Tarsus, Paul, came through, uh, he was a Jew, and he was born through the line of of Benjamin. And he says that in his own uh, resume. And then this fourth son is Joseph. He's the 11th of the 12. And he's so the second to the youngest. And he's the one the Bible follows follows next. So if you turn to page 5. You then begin in the latter part of the book of Genesis. The second 2,000 years. Second 2,000 years, part one. So a couple of parts to that second 2,000 years. This section, top of page five, covers the period from Abraham in 2000 BC through Moses in 1500 to David in 1000. So a 1,000 years in this part one of that second 2,000 years. These are the key figures who framed this 1,000 years of history, this millennium of history. Specifically, we'll begin where we left off with Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, and end with David's son, Solomon. So here are some of the events of this time period. Joseph entered 
Egypt. And you see the chapters in Genesis that deal with Joseph going into Egypt. Now, you'll remember why Joseph winds up in Egypt. Uh, so I'll just rehearse for you the fact that uh, Jacob, who's a bit of a louse, okay, Jacob, and Jacob has a favorite wife. All right, you're already a louse when you have like a, <laughs> a favorite wife, <laughs> okay, but he has a favorite wife, Rachel, and the first son of two from this favorite wife, Rachel, is Joseph. He has two sons through Rachel, two of the twelve, the last two, Joseph and Benjamin. And the first of those two, through his favorite wife, Rachel, is, is Joseph. So as a result of that, he shows favoritism towards Joseph. And his favoritism is shown uh, in a number of ways. One is that he gives him this coat of many colors, which has nothing to do with is it Andrew Lloyd Webber or uh, okay? Sorry, <laughs> Donny Osmond is not part of it. <laughs> part of the story here. But Joseph's you know Technicolor dream coat, right? That's what that's mm-hmm. right. that's where that comes from at least. And uh, he gives them this this coat. They're jealous over that favoritism. They're also jealous over the fact that Joseph, at a young age, is able to have and interpret dreams. And one of those dreams that he has that. He tells to his brothers, I might have just kept this one to myself. (laughs) But one of them is, hey, I had this dream that you guys will come bowing before me at some point in the future. All right, that's it. (laughs) All right, first is the coat, and now there's this, and there's all the other favoritism that dad shows to you. So they plot against him. And they plot at first to kill him, but then they say, no, we'll sell him into to slavery, which is what they do. And through a series of events, uh, sold into slavery, they think they will never see him again, but he winds up in Egypt. And because he's industrious, and because he's you know, got this good work ethic and so on, and God's good providence, he rises to, to prominence in the house of one named Potiphar. And Potiphar is mentioned in that, that paragraph. And he's still having these, these dreams, and... Um, and Pharaoh, um, he interpreted a dream that Pharaoh had had in the middle of that paragraph. While he was there, he interpreted a dream of Pharaoh, which predicted seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Impressed by his knowledge, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of handling the food supply for the next 14 years. And so Joseph said, well, we got to prepare for this. we got to prepare for this coming famine. <clears throat> and so he took seven years to prepare for that. The famine did come. It affected not only Egypt, but it affected the region. In affecting the region, that meant his family was affected. And the only place to get food was, guess where? In Egypt, because they had prepared for it. So the, so the sons come to Egypt thinking their brother is long gone, probably dead. And who do they encounter but Joseph? And who are they having to bow before? Joseph. <laughs> Joseph. So once they realize that this is Joseph and he identifies who he is, they figure he's going to kill them. But he has mercy upon them. And he says famously in the last chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50 and verse 12. Genesis 50 and verse 20. Excuse me, 50, 20. You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. 
So in all of your evil, in all of your machinations, in all of your connivings, God was at work behind this to bring about what you see now, the saving of many people, saving them from this from this famine. But actually, in a, in a, in a very distant sense, saving people in a spiritual sense because God is now going to use this to move the story forward. This being... Joseph's family, Jacob's family, is now in Egypt. So they wind up in Egypt. And do you guys remember I told you that in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 15, when God was talking to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but there's going to be a period of 400 years where you will be enslaved, not here, but in another country. Guess where that other country is? Egypt. And that's how they got there. The way they got to Egypt was through this whole thing of the plot through the, of the brothers and then God working it out for the famine to happen and them to have to come. And now the, the whole family is, is now in, in Egypt. And so all of Israel, all of Jacob's descendants are now going to be in Israel and they're going to be in Israel for 430 years. And they grow to a mighty nation while they're there. But they're enslaved in, in Egypt, which then cries out for a deliverer. And the deliverer comes in the, the next book of next book of the Bible. And that next book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and number two here is Moses leading the Exodus. The Israelites were in Egypt 430 years. They grew to be a nation of about two and a half million people but became the slaves of Egyptians after Joseph died. The Bible tells us that, this is a quote, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. That is, a Pharaoh who arises later doesn't know the story about the exploits of Joseph, doesn't care that these are his people, and so mistreats them, and Egypt mistreats them from that point on. So they became the slaves of Egyptians after Joseph died. And then God raised up a new leader named Moses. Around 1500 B.C., he led the Israelites out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea on dry land to Mount Sinai. Now, they grew to be a nation of about two and a half million people. So how do we know that? In Numbers, okay, there's a book called Numbers. <laughs> That's why it's called Numbers. Okay. <laughs> Because it's got this that kind of stuff in it. So if you go through the book of Numbers, so you got Genesis and Exodus, and the Exodus is about the Exodus coming out of Egypt. Leviticus is, as we said, the Levites and the ceremonies. But Numbers, the fourth book of your Bible, and it's got all these kinds of census data in it. And in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 45, Numbers 1.45, it says that the number of adult men, adult males, who came out of Egypt was 603,550. 603,550. So, how many adults were there? Well, if these men had wives, then the estimate is you have just over a million adults. Half of them female, half of them half of the male. And then they have 
presumably they have children. So that's where the estimate of 2 million people or 2.5 million people comes from. It starts with 603,550 adult males coming out of Egypt. But then you've got the wives and then you've got the children as well. Okay, So just try to imagine that. Now you've got a couple of million people that you're going to be leading out of Egypt and to the and to the promised land. And many of you know the story that God says, I'm bringing you out with a mighty, mighty hand. You know how God did that with the, the plagues, how he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and how Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Bible says both of those. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So you've got that, di- that dynamic going on. God's involved. And the individual, Pharaoh's involved as well. So how does God harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, what does he do? Does he just kind of zap him? So that... as, you, as you look at how God deals with people, what he normally does, and what it appears he did with Pharaoh, is he puts people in circumstances where their hearts are exposed. And so he put Pharaoh in a circumstance where the where the desires and the sin of Pharaoh's heart was exposed. So God hardened his heart in the sense that he put him in a circumstance where he gave him enough rope to hang himself. And that's why the Bible says God hardened, but Pharaoh hardened as well, because Pharaoh is just doing what Pharaoh does in a situation where he's challenged. And he's told, you're not the true and living God as the Egyptians thought he was. But rather, there is a true and living God who is the God of Israel, these slaves. And he challenges you, and, and Pharaoh's heart then is, is hardened. And he will not be challenged, and so the ten plagues. And finally, after many times of let my people go, he is forced by the, by the mighty hand of God to let God's people go. They go, and they are supposed to go to the promised land. They get to the promised land in short order, relatively short order. But they wind up in the wilderness for 40 years. So why? Why why 40, 40 years? 11 days was too far away. What's that? Because 11 days was too far away. 11 days. Isn't that what it was? 11 days to get to? Well, here, okay, so they get there in short order. Mm-hmm. But, but, they didn't. but they don't want to go in. They take 40 days to think about it. And they send spies in, and the spies come back and go, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think we're going to take those guys. And that's what they did. So they take 40 days. And in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34, Numbers 14, 34, after they disobey God. You mean 40 years? No, for, they take 40 days oh. to figure it out. I'm getting to the 40 years. Oh, I'm answering the question, why 40 years? Okay. <laughs> they take 40 days to figure it out. And they take 40 days to disobey God. That's, what they, that's in effect what they're doing. God says, go take it. And they go, no, they're too big. <laughs> there's, only, there's only two guys who say, no, we, we need to do this. You remember Caleb and Joshua. They're the two guys who say, we can do this. But the rest say, no, we can't. And they don't. And God says, because you have disobeyed me, you are going to wander in the wilderness one year for every day that you disobeyed me. The reason it's 40 years is because they took 40 days in delayed obedience. 
And so, and it says that in Numbers 14 and verse 34. It will be one year for every day that you disobey them. Okay. So we will pick up there with them wandering in the wilderness and Moses being called by God uh, next week.